however, Aidan Williams have a problem. Um, and it's, it's quite a big problem because if people only have a £20 note but can only afford one book on May the 2nd, it... I mean, really, what you should do is actually here's the compromise: you should buy my book for a tenner as an ebook, and your book, The Nearly Men, the eternal allure of the greatest teams that failed to win the World Cup. Because my book that I'm not here to talk about or promote is out on May the second. But that's an easy way to remember that this book is also out May the second. Aren't all the best books out on May the second? Well, that's all I can say. To someone's that. is out on the ninth. Is it Scraggs out on the ninth and Horsefield are yes. both out on the ninth? No, it was going to be both. Stevens is now. Stu's has gone back to September, basically because mm. he's got to be away at various things. Hasn't had a chance to finish it, so that's that's got pushed back. And that's September now, I think. Obviously, a, a late World Cup helps that. But yeah, so Stevens Mexico '86 is out May the ninth. Yes, and I imagine he will touch on Denmark, the um, dangerous. Oh, what are they called? Down Danish Dynamite. Me. Indeed, yeah. Who you yeah. talk about in your book? This is the eternal allure. Uh, and we'll be talking about romance in the next hour. And we mentioned Stephen Scragg and Stuart Horsfield and also Gary Thacker, who I've got in very shortly to bang on about his Chelsea book. Oh, boy, that's going to be a fun chat. Uh, what a day. <laughs> right, have you checked in on him? Yes, I have. He hasn't said any thoughts about that. <laughs> uh, I did say, I wonder whether, uh, flippantly, whether what's happening now will actually be positive for his book as Chelsea fans... Uh, want to reminisce about days things were a bit more positive for them. Mm. It's about the only game of Brown which has shown up for at any level, but it's all gone rather Pete Tong for yeah. Chelsea, and we're speaking during their game against Norwich. I mean, what would be amazing is if Norwich pulled their finger out and won, because they would they need some points. It's it's odd to know how it's going to go, isn't it? And if you if you want to talk about dodgy regimes, well, it's Chelsea Newcastle at the weekend. Indeed. Uh, I'll be supporting... Uh, who do you no, support? No. Chelsea against Newcastle. Um, but yes, Newcastle are your team and you blame Kevin Keegan for this book, which is about um, the teams that didn't win the World Cup but have some kind of romantic charm or swagger comes up very often uh, about it. So we'll yeah. be talking about some of the teams that, and, and, and all your old favourites are there. But we are not talking so much about the teams that Gary covers in his book about the Dutch teams in the 70s <laughs> And the Brazil team that Stuart Horsfield talks about in his book about Brazil, 82. If you could go back in a time machine and be where you will be asked this a lot. Back in a time machine, which team would you want to watch? Oh, my God. So this is favourite, not who I think is the best or and the best team to not win, because that's a question I will not answer. Precisely, which, which um, is a good thing to do. And by the way... Um, the, the entertainers of 95-6 are also eligible, even though they didn't win a World Cup. Obviously, I would have loved it. Loved it. To coin a phrase. Mm. Yeah. I think if I could go back, it would probably be to, to be in the stadium for one particular final. I would guess 1950 would be quite something to see. Uh, that would be quite a remarkable one. But if it's a team, I would guess maybe Austria or Hungary would be the interesting ones to see, because they were kind of revolutionary in a way. But I think for an actual one-off game, seeing the 1950 uh, final match rather than the final, uh, as it was, would be quite something to witness. Here's a fact that I learned in this book. What colour shirt were the home team wearing at the Marikanar in 1950? They were all white. I never knew that. It, in your head, if yeah. you said, if you told me all about this Brazil team... 
and we didn't have photos available. I would presume they were in that green and gold with blue. <laughs> but tell me who designed that. Well, following the 1950 final and all the sort of recriminations and the associations of defeat and the, the stadium itself was part of that, the kit was similarly cursed in their, in their perception, I guess. So a competition was instigated to design a new kit for Brazil based on the colours of their flag. So that's green, yellow and blue predominantly. And various designs came in. If you look at the flag, obviously green is the most prominent colour. So I think a number of the entries came in would have had Brazil in green shirts, which now seems a bit weird, doesn't it? But no, the, the, the winning entry was by a, a young man who hails from the very south of Brazil, close to the Uruguayan border. Mr. Schley, I think his name yeah. was. I can't remember his first name now. And because he comes from so close to Uruguay, he was actually considers himself a Uruguay fan, not a Brazil fan. So the iconic kit that Brazil are utterly associated with, as you say, in your mind's eye, you do not see anything other than yellow or golden yellow, bright, dazzling in the sunshine, usually. usually. That was designed by a Uruguay fan, a Brazilian Uruguay fan, caused by the fact that Uruguay beat Brazil. And that chapter about Brazil 1950, it is known about Barbosa and the mistake and the yeah. racist treatment of the black Brazilian players at the time. Um, but I wanted to uh, tell the listener to this football library uh, radio show promoting the book The Nearly Men uh, by Aidan Williams. Brazil played the first 20 minutes against Yugoslavia against 10 men. Why? <laughs> Yes, well, it was the land of the last minute, and this is probably something that isn't unique to Brazil hosting a World Cup, that uh, a lot is left to the last minute. Uh, the Maracanã was being built as a, a sort of symbol of Brazil's progress, I guess, as sort of a way to show the world of the stature that Brazil as a country had. This is what we can produce now, and it's the biggest and the most magnificent stadium the world had ever seen, which it certainly was. But it wasn't finished. So uh, when, the, when the tournament kicked off, there were various bits were held together. There was bits of wet cement and there was all sorts of girders sticking out where they probably shouldn't have been. And one of the Yugoslavian players bashed his head on one of these, caused a gash in his head that had to be stitched up and dealt with. And yeah, like you say, he missed the first part of the match as a result. But it, of course, in fair play, in the great nature of fair play, and FIFA was run by an Englishman at the time, Stanley Rouse, I think Brazil should have taken a man off. <laughs> I, I don't know what the full rules were, but I, I guess it's your own fault if you can't get someone to start. And there were no substitutes, yeah, of course, in those days. Yeah. And, yeah, it's not Brazil's fault. I Well, not the Brazilian team's fault. I guess that's how it went. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's the same as... You know, there were, there were some other games in those days where people break a leg and they just have to hobble around in the corner or, or go off. You know, there's, there's nothing you can do about it. No substitutes, no changes. So I guess the team sheet was already in and he wasn't able to start, so he couldn't. Indeed. The 1950s, a glorious decade uh, for fans in northeast England. And I, I mentioned how it was Kevin Keegan's fault that you got not addicted to failure, but you appreciated... The, the glory in not winning. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was actually the season that I fell for football. Euro 96 was at the end of it. Grandpa was a Man United fan. I was down in Watford. Watford were not doing well at the time, so I didn't go to matches. But we had Sky, and I'd heard who Cantona was and 
Mickey Button, Phil Neville shared my birthday. So I started watching a lot of football. And 1995, 1996 was the season that Kevin Keegan and the entertainers uh, came up. So were you in the Northeast at the time? Uh, I was actually away at university. So, well, I was here part of the time. My family was here. But I was away at university. That was my final year at uh, university, oddly enough, in Manchester of all oh, places. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, uh, only up the road from Old Trafford. Well, no, that not just that, but 95-6 for the, for the music scene. God, I want to take a tangent there. But did you go, <laughs> did you go to the Hacienda at all? I have been to the Hacienda, yes, I did. Um, it was probably slightly after its prime, I guess, by then. But no, I certainly have been to the Hacienda <laughs> in my time in Manchester. Uh, yeah, yeah well, it was a good, it was a vibrant place to be. It was good fun place for students there's four universities all converging yeah. in one there uh so yeah it's a lively scene it was a great city to be in you know it looks very different now i went back to manchester this last summer actually and i barely recognized anything so obviously 1996 was the year that the armdale center was bombed yeah uh by the ira as well now i, I was in manchester then well that, that was the day england played scotland in euro 96 i remember it really, really well, because being a student, I was still in my pit at the time, and I heard a loud thud, just thought it was like a door slamming or something like that. Uh, it, it woke me up, even though I you know, should have been up by then. It woke me up, I thought, oh, it's just a door slamming or something, and then, lo and behold, see the news later on, I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's what it was. Uh, we'll shelve our plans to go into the city to watch the game. Uh, and I remember watching that game and Gaza's wonderful goal, but... I suppose I'll get this question now because I was going to leave it to the end. But if you were to write this book next year, would you hope that England perhaps <laughs> would form a nice final chapter? That will mean they've lost, of course. But uh, gloriously. <laughs> gloriously. Gloriously. Like Phil Foden misses a sitter. Potentially, I guess they've got a chance for that. I mean, if you talk about the theme that comes through in this book of not just glorious failure and defeat, but also, you know, where there's some sort of impact or uh, societal change or reflection as a result. And we talked there about Brazil in the 50s and the racism and, and things like that. Well, you could class England last summer on that grounds when it comes to the whole racism issues of uh, what happened to those three three lads who missed the penalties. Uh, maybe that caused a bit of introspection or reflection from England and didn't like what it saw to some extent. So that would fit the, fit the category if it was about the Euros. But if it came to the World Cup, yeah, I've got a feeling they might fall a bit shorter. Well, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> I've said for years that the final is going to be Brazil against Argentina, which is something that you map. You talk about how the worst thing to happen was that Argentina got to the final of the World Cup in Brazil. Uh, apparently, Higain, because he was mates with Messi, Messi more or less ran that dressing room. And if Higain hadn't played, maybe Argentina would have won the World Cup. But as he quite rightly says, well, no one was booing me when I scored all those goals before the final. I know. He's, he's a great unfortunate, Higain. You know, he's a great striker. Well, a good striker rather than great, I guess, is the best way to put it. He was just unfortunate that, or maybe Argentina were unfortunate that the best chances fell his way. As I talk about in the book, you know, there's Messi has a, a fairly good chance as well, and there's a number of others. Argentina in 2014 is an odd one. It, it was a really, really interesting story to look into because the popular perception is probably, yeah, Germany were the rightful winners. And yeah, I, yeah, they, they were. 
they were. I'm not really contending that overall in the tournament. But when it comes to the final, if you look at the final itself, in isolation, Argentina had by far the better and more numerous chances to win that game. And as you say, that would have been all of Brazil's absolute nightmare uh, to have done that in the Maracanã off the back of the humiliation Brazil had suffered only a few days before. Brazil, incidentally, did not play in the Maracanã at all during that tournament. Uh, other than had they reached the final, they would have had to play there. Of course, yeah, so, it was Belo Horizonte, wasn't it? It was Belo Horizonte, oh. and they they simply avoided it. This was the schedule, obviously. It was mapped out for them, win their group, and this is the progression they'll take through. This was quite deliberate, I suppose, to um, Fernando Duarte, who who's uh, a Brazilian writer. He wrote written a book about Brazil's World Cup failures. Shocking Brazil, it's an excellent book. I, I talked to him, and he was talking about how they... The, the whole Maracanazo cast the shadow so deeply from so long ago that they did not play at the Maracanã and it would only have been the final. Of course, their, their perfect ideal would have been to beat Argentina in the final in Brazil, but that would have also had the, the potential of losing to them too. Mm-hmm. But yes, Higuain, it's unfortunate. I mean, he did put one in the net in the final, but it was offside. He was also the one, I think, who got clattered by Manuel Neuer. Yeah early on as well. So, you know, and he was central to proceedings throughout. And quite rightly, his quote, as you say, was about, you know, he'd scored the, the winning goal, the only goal against Belgium in the quarterfinal. Um, he played quite well throughout, you know, maybe not as significant as Messi, certainly Messi in the group stages was the one who stepped up all the time and, and rescued them and got them through. But yeah, he had the big chances and mm, had some of those fallen Messi's way rather than Higuain, maybe it would have been a different yeah. result. The book covers uh, right up till 2014 but the world cup was the tournament up to about italia 90 it was the world cup if pep guardiola was managing now he'd be managing spain and using totally. his yeah. his now well, he would have won everything with barcelona beforehand but he would have gone to spain in a world cup year uh, and won it i would like to ask you before we we go and go all the way back have you watched different World Cups in different countries? Because I know you've spent some time in Japan. For instance, were you in Japan during the World Cup? No, uh, unfortunately I wasn't. No, I, I was in Japan. I arrived in Japan weeks after the 2006 World Cup. So it was, they hadn't done particularly well that time, unfortunately. But no, I, I arrived there late in the, the July. So just a matter of weeks after the World Cup final that year. So there was there was big excitement about it. There was plenty of people following it and talking about it obviously japan had hosted only four years earlier at that time and in fact there was still loads of signs of of uh, of that everywhere even the, the the language school i taught in in this this town called shimizu home of shimizu s pulse mm-hmm. uh to throw their name out there uh the language school i taught in there was in this little oh i don't want to say a mile because it was just one street thing but uh, it was kind of covered over and one of the shops next next to it had a couple of the 2002 shirts hanging up for sale so there was the Japanese one there was the Turkey one who obviously did quite well that year uh, and a couple of others as well so there was all sorts of lingering signs of the 2002 World Cup there and the obsession with football was was huge even though in most of Japan baseball was the number one thing but because the World Cup had just been on, yeah, they were very much uh, into it and talking about it and, and very Beckham-obsessed as well, I have to say. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, and since 1994, it does seem that the World Cup has become a commercial entity. The States, it went to France 
because they I don't think they'd ever hosted a World Cup before France, so it's the first time. Um, and it was the uh, they, did, they did one in, in the 30s, 1938, Ooh, but that was uh, obviously a very, very different concept back then, indeed. Um, and then it was uh, Japan, South Korea, Germany won it because South Africa, it was South Africa were up for it, and it went to Germany with the proviso that it went to South Africa the next time. Uh, and then Brazil got yes. it, and then Russia have got it, and then there's another one this year. Will you be watching this year's World Cup, by the way? Interesting question. I don't think I could actually manage not to, and that I appreciate that that makes me a hypocrite on all sorts of levels. I suspect I'm not alone in it. I, I've got all sorts of issues about it, and you, we could talk about Newcastle United on this theme as well, and I've done whole podcasts talking about my, my thoughts on that. Oh, with who? Uh, who with? Uh, with these football times. Yeah. In fact, it's why I, I hosted and, and chatted at length with some of my colleagues about about my thoughts on the Newcastle takeover just in the aftermath of that. So, and, and the Qatar World Cup, I've read various books uh, exposing a lot of the corruption behind how it was awarded. That's one side of it. Then, of course, if you think of Qatar, the country... Uh, how it treats people, how it treats its own citizens, how it treats foreign citizens, the, the labour issues, the, the laws that it has on various things, homo, homosexual. It's it's a moral nightmare uh, because being so World Cup obsessed, I don't think I could possibly know that there's a World Cup going on that I wasn't watching, if that makes sense. And yeah, I fully accept that makes me a bit of a hit. No, but that's that's the position lots of fans have been put in. I'm sure there have been lots of fans of Chelsea uh, who are living in St. Petersburg who are horribly conflicted now, uh, unless they've known the truth for a while. I know that there is a big expatriate community of Geordies, or at least I think there are, uh, in Saudi. Um, but it's all football at the top, top level, and it's such a shame to see Newcastle being dragged into it, is a pawn. P-A-W-A yes. and also P-O-R-N. And so the, the, be- the sooner that Watford become a mid-table championship club, the better. We should not be in the Premier League at this stage. Forest should buck their ideas up. Fulham should buck their ideas up. Um, Leeds will bounce back, surely. But Newcastle, you should be a top six club. You know that. Everyone else in St. James's knows that. It's just a shame that you've had this... Well, the disaster of the Ashley era... Um, if if Abramovich is helping to provide trucks to Russia, what bad stuff did Mike Ashley do in comparison with him? <laughs> well, yes, obviously you put it that way. Uh, it's nothing on that scale whatsoever. Uh, no, I mean, I, I could point out various working practices at, at his uh, sports merchandise uh, store, but it obviously pales into... Insignificant. Yeah, but and now we're playing kind of my club is less unethical, unethical than yours. Which is, it's madness that it's come to that. It, it totally is. And I, I, I have this whole conflict again about the Saudi thing. The same as we're talking about Qatar there, because uh, it's, it's more from the perspective. I've got a young son who I want to take to football. This is Elliot. That he would, yes, exactly. And, and I haven't been going to Newcastle regularly for a long time. It's been fairly sporadic over the last, oh, I don't know, 10, 10 or more years. Not just because of Ashley, just because of other things in life. And also the Ashley factor has caused it to be a bit pointless. Uh, I've taken him a couple of times in the Ashley era. We've been 
one game since the takeover too. Again, this is the hypocritical, hypocritical thing. And as you say, people of maybe greater uh, moral fibre might, might be able to take a bigger stance. Um, I'm not, I, I don't go regularly. I don't sort of fill their coffers very much at all. But I, I'm not going to sort of deny my son the chance to go. Equally, though, I think if success comes along, and I still would use the word if because, you know, all sorts could go wrong. For yes. Newcastle, and it often does, and you know, politically things might change, as we can see, things might alter. But if it does, it won't feel like it would have done had the Keegan team won. Let's put it that way. It won't be as fulfilling. It won't, yeah, it won't see me absolutely overjoyed and deliriously happy. It will feel quite hollow. And you said there, what you said there about Watford, it's really interesting about how you would, you'd almost rather they were a mid-table championship team. I can I can totally understand that. Part of the reasons I've not been going to football regularly for, for quite some time is the sort of disillusionment of the money, basically, and how that is all that really matters at the top level. Yeah, but you've, you've read Harry Pearson's international... book. You've read Harry Pearson's uh, books. There are so many teams in the northeast you can go to. Gateshead, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blythe. Yes, it doesn't have the quite same impact on a young kid going into a big stadium. Yes, uh, as Bobby Robson would tell you, yeah. Very much so, and there is a connection. And sure, uh, Gateshead is the most convenient other one, and that is certainly one. Well, I, I've been to them a couple of times. Uh, I've written articles about them as well, actually, uh, and that, they, that's one to go to absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it, it's not ideal. I mean, like what I say, you, you're saying there about Watford is since the takeover. That's one thing that's kind of struck me a bit. It's like you know what I would actually prefer if I wasn't a Newcastle fan and I hadn't been all this time. Because then it would, would, you know, I wouldn't be in this position. I could just happily support a team that's a bit crap. Uh, and if anything, reading the, writing this book, sorry, is, uh, as you say, it's been inspired by a team that lost and it did so gloriously. But you know, I, I seem to be more comfortable with teams that are a bit crap and fail. It's a British <laughs> thing. It's and it, it, where I'm sort of more comfortable. <laughs> we'll talk about your other book in the second half as well, but. Um... You do get your football library card, which means, Aidan Williams, that you get to take out the books by Gary Thacker, Stuart Horsfield, Stephen Scragg, Paul McParland, <laughs> and all the rest of the, these Football Times people. And also in the football library is the complete catalogue of the very rare, complete set of these Football Times magazines. I don't know how I've gotten hold of them. Goodness. Because it wow. cost me a that lot of money. No, this is a kind of mind palace where even though they, they sold out even before they're printed... I mean, I keep saying with these football times, what a magnificent operation. I wrote about 10 years ago, and since all of the guys, of the, 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 the posse have come in, it is a, a fantastic place to go for uh, football articles, not least yours about Johnny Rep, which I read in order to find out about the Dutch team. Uh, and there's one about Luka Modric as well, who was the player of the tournament yep. Uh, yep. in Russia. But these football times, I've, I've asked all the rest of the guys, it is a group of like-minded people sitting around with a microphone open, talking sense about things that they have researched very deeply. And it is the kind of football literature that I like to read. Um, I don't know if you're in the works of the next uh, booklet. There were, did you contribute to the Ronaldo one, the Phenomeno Ronaldo one or the Fiorentina one? Yep, absolutely. And you're quite right. There are more in the works already. <laughs> it's, a, it's a never ending process. You're running out. I don't know. How many have you done now? Is it about 20? <laughs> oh, I'm looking 
looking at my bookshelf here and I don't even have all of them because I, I wasn't even involved at the start. I've mm. come to it later. I think I can see more than 20 on my shelf. Yeah. So I, I think we're probably into the mid-30s, I would guess, yeah. overall. How did you get involved? Um, so in- we started a, prior to writing for these football times, I was doing various things. I was doing reviews of sports books on a website and I was doing various other blog posts on Oh, my own thing about international football just for my own pleasure rather than for anyone else really because not not many people ever noticed or read because it was just a you know blog spot thing for my own satisfaction and I was writing for a couple of websites where I just submitted things and then I was just looking around uh, for for other places that I could get my work out there or, or to at least give me the focus for somewhere to to sort of aspire to and I came across these football times and you know initially I was just reading the articles there and quite enjoying it and seeing it's unlike many websites you know where it's all about the new cycle and the constant churn and stuff it was all a lot of older stuff nostalgic stuff uh, historical as well as things more present but you know always from a maybe a slightly different angle uh, and that really really appealed so I, I decided I was going to write something and submit it there. My, my first one was actually, <laughs> interestingly enough, given the theme of this book, it was about Alcides Gigia, Gigia, however you pronounce his surname, the guy who silenced the Maracanã in 1950, scoring the winning goal for Uruguay. It was because he just, he died. This was going back a few years. He died that, that year. And I wrote an article about him and I sent it off to Omar Salim, the, the editor of these football times. And I said, I've written this. Uh, it's quite topical right now. I would love it if you could publish it. And he he took a look, and obviously it was it was good enough. And he said yes, and and put it up there. And I, it's kind of carried on from there. Yeah. Uh, progressing up to the magazines, that that was that was another step because um, obviously there's only twelve, thirteen, fourteen or so articles in a magazine, depending on what it's about. Uh, so opportunities there are more limited, and it, it took me a while to to end up. Uh, fortunate enough to, to get into those but once I did that uh, fortunately again became more regular and then as you say the podcast as well you, you're totally right it's it's like just sitting in a bar with your mates really just virtually on whatever the topic is and, and having a good chat a lot of nostalgia as you say a lot of really good well thought out opinions mostly from everybody else uh, <laughs> it should be said but it, it's it's always entertaining to do educational to do as well you know we, we'll all bring nuggets and so on but there's always stuff we learn from each other as well uh, and it's always fascinating it disappears off at all sorts of tangents as these things do uh, which makes it great fun and so hopefully it comes across that way to the listeners too uh, and it, it's interesting for other people as well because we have a blast doing yeah that's that's nine tenths of why I enjoy listening to it because it is fun. The nearly men, the eternal allure of the greatest teams that failed to win the World Cup. When is the books stag do? <laughs> the books stag do. Uh, to explain what that is, is uh, is uh, on our these football times podcasts. Whenever one of uh, one of ourselves has released a book, which has happened a few times in in recent years to some of the other guys, we have what we term a stag do. So we we discuss it on a podcast and have a good chat about it. Uh, we're recording the stag do for it in the week before release, so that would be late April. We'll be recording the stag do, and that will hopefully go out in the week the book also goes out uh, at the start of May. Yes, and so keen am I. Um, to promote this book because I'm promoting another book that I'm not here to talk about that I've written about the FA Youth Cup in May. You can pre-order this book, uh, which is out on pitch at May the 2nd. Is it a big paperback? 
it's a hardback, 360-odd pages of hardback uh, book. I've just actually, Johnny, perfect, we're talking about this today because I actually got a box full of a few of them through the post this afternoon, uh, a few early advanced copies. And so I've actually got my hands on a copy of it today, uh, and that was a lovely feeling. But, yes, it's a hardback. 